0: Thank you, Daron, and thank you everybody for coming. And tonight we really have a, a special uh, speaker So Neil Kressel is here. And Neil, what makes it most gratifying is for two reasons. see an old colleague and friend, Neil was um, a research scholar at ISA, which is the Yale initiative for the interdisciplinary study of antisemitism. He was a scholar with us for several years. And ISGAPS funded Yale entity, which we were at Yale for five years, and Neil was with us for a few years at Yale um, while he was, uh, he kept his regular job in New Jersey. Um, and one of the nice things of having Neil here, one of the canards against ESA, one of the lies against ESA, was that we didn't publish anything as an entity. And in fact, our scholars, we had a postdoc program and a graduate studies program, and we had visiting professors. Who are based with us. And during the five year period, we had eight books published by our colleagues who are with us and over 50 articles. And one of the books that just came out last year, 2012, is by Neil. And it's called The Sons of Pigs and Apes Muslim Antisemitism and a Conspiracy of Silence. And I think that this book is a very important read. It's a very important book and deals not only with. Uh, anti-Semitism in the Islamic world or in the Muslim world, which is rising and becoming a threat. But equally, if not more important, is the silence in the West, the silence among the intellectual media, the media of record, and among the scholars at some of the finest institutions in the Western world. There is literally a conspiracy of silence, and so when people are brave, and it's amazing to say that a scholar is brave for dealing with such an important issue, But Neil has been brave for dealing with an issue which is perceived as politically incorrect. It's okay to deal with the history of anti-Semitism. It's okay to deal, I don't want to sound crude, but it's okay to deal with dead Jews. That's politically acceptable. But when people are brave like Neil to engage an issue of trying to develop an understanding and policies and approaches for dealing with contemporary issues to stop the madness. You have to be brave because our colleagues uh, often don't like to hear about it. So Neil is is the author of this book, which is very important. The book documents a dangerous and growing epidemic of anti-Jewish bigotry in many parts of the Muslim world. Neil further argues that scholars, human rights organizations, religious leaders, and politicians have largely ignored, misunderstood, and downplayed this hatred. Neil traces such dysfunctional reactions to the complex mixture of apathy, ignorance, and confusion, bigotry, ideology, purported, purported pragmatism, and misguided forms of multiculturalism. Neil is also the author of a book entitled Bad Faith, The Danger of Religious Extremism, Mass Hatred, The Global Rise of Genocide and Terror, which he published in 2002 with Westview Books, and many other books and articles. In addition to his work, Neil has appeared in scholarly uh, publications, newspapers, periodicals, and he has been a frequent commentator on radio, newspapers, and in television. Uh, Neil also holds a PhD in social psychology from Harvard University, a master's degree in comparative history from Brandeis University, and he's a professor of psychology at William Patterson University, where he directs an honors program in social sciences. In 2011, he received the Tikkun Award for his research on anti-Semitism from the Haiti Jewish Refugee Legacy Project. So with all of these credentials and given the fact that he was a colleague at Yale, it's really an honor that you're here to present.
1: Very uh, gracious introduction. And I, I might add that it's um, fun for me to be um, back at Fordham because about a week and a half after I got married, my wife started law school here. And I didn't see her for, uh, for three years except for when I went to, uh, to Fordham uh, where she was editing um, the law review. And um, so it's uh, particularly fun to be back in this building and um, I think that the, the best way to start, I think, is by calling attention to the fact that in 2010, President Morsi called the Jews the sons of apes and pigs. And then somehow, for some reason, and I'm not sure why, about two or three weeks ago, it was treated like news in the United States. It got to the front page of the New York Times, It got to a a lot of other major media. And the question that baffled me is, why now? Why all of a sudden, this particular instance of outrageous anti-Semitism is getting some attention? Whereas all of the other incidents that I have been certainly reading about and studying for quite a few years, and that everybody who even bothers to look a little bit could see, why that did not get um, much um, attention. And when it happened, I I sort of wondered, maybe this time it's so public and it's so outrageous that we finally found an instance of anti-Semitism coming from the Muslim world, from a high place in the Muslim world, that would be impossible to ignore. That the left, that the Um, academics, the human rights community, they would have to seize upon this and pay attention to it. Um, Perhaps when when Morsi said that, told his countrymen, to nurse our our children and our grandchildren on hatred for Jews and Zionists, he sounded an uh, an alarm for those who have so often tried to argue that we can find friends within the Muslim brotherhood. Um, and indeed, President Obama's spokesman said that he harshly, he severely condemned the Morsi's language, but he also reaffirmed um, the American commitment to the Egyptian president and his pro-peace role. One has to wonder a bit about a pro-peace role which is predicated upon a belief that you're going to nurture your children and your grandchildren on hatred. A pro-peace role which is based on that premise has to be a, um, a very complex or very, uh, uh, a very subtle pro-peace role. There's something about it that just doesn't seem right. Now, meanwhile, the New York Times um, wondered, without a shred of evidence, whether and this is from a New York Times editorial, they wondered whether perhaps um, becoming president made Morsi, and this is a quote, think differently about the need to respect all people. And now if, if they said that on the basis of some evidence some declaration that I was totally wrong in what I said previously and now I see things differently, then I can understand that making it into an editorial in the most respected newspaper in the United States. But without a shred of evidence to say that, it makes you wonder what's going on. I guess that the editors are suggesting that um, he could be a, a new man. I guess what they're suggesting is, as Morsi did, that his comments were taken out of context. You don't have to think a long time to wonder what context justifies saying we will teach our children and our grandchildren to hate the Jews and the Zionists. What's the context that makes makes that right? But in any case, um, if we did believe that the comments were taken out of context and that Morsi um, had become a new man, we are still left neglecting the fact that this sort of anti-Semitism is endemic throughout many parts of the Muslim world. Now I want to start by saying I'm not saying everywhere in the Muslim world. I'm not saying every Muslim. I'm not saying that Islam must be anti-Semitic. I'm not saying that there aren't um, brave enemies of anti-Semitism within the Muslim world, but what I am saying is that many high level leaders in the Muslim world, and many, and, and many of their followers, and much of the public, and many people who are sometimes declared moderates in the West, are still showing signs of what we would have to call not anti zionism I'm not talking about hostility towards the state of Israel. I'm talking about old-fashioned bigotry, old-fashioned anti-Semitism. I'm not, I'm not making an argument here for the, the, um, the new anti-Semitism, the anti-Semitism that's based on treating Israel um, differently than other um, other countries are treated or using Um, gross imagery in the description of the state of Israel. I'm not talking about that type of new anti-Semitism. I'm talking about old-fashioned bigotry, and that we find it in um, many places. Let me give you some examples. A few years ago, um, when Sheikh Tantawi died, he received in most of the Western media very glowing obituaries for having been a true moderate, a true friend of peace in the Middle East, and that um, there was some evidence for this. The uh, the sheikh actually was an advocate for some for more rights for women than some others who have been in similar positions to his. And he had also, on occasion, um, shown some willingness to deal with Israel. At well, what one point, does he Israel... represent? what? From what country does the sheikh? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. The sheikh. It was the. Um, was the head of Al-Azhar University, the most prestigious university in the Sunni Muslim world. So he wasn't representing a country, but he was representing the institution of higher learning that has probably the greatest prestige among in Sunni Islam. In Cairo. in, in Cairo. And it's very very important, I, I'm sorry I didn't say that piece, because it's very important to understand that this is not a, one of the many sheikhs that you find um, with with small followings, but rather a guy who had risen to the pinnacle of influence within the Sunni Islamic world. Now the, the Sheikh, um, he, he did some good things. He, he shook hands with an Israeli president, and he um, later on he took a lot of heat from the um, um he took took a lot of heat from his own supporters so he said well i didn't know exactly whose hand i was shaking and i'm sorry and he also met with the chief rabbi of israel and he took heat for that also and apologized for it and he would defend himself by saying don't you guys know i'm the one who wrote a doctoral dissertation in which I listed all the unflattering characteristics of the Jews. So my credentials are good in this area. My flank is protected. I don't have the list with me now. It's in my book, but um, a whole long list of all the characteristics. And he was discerning this, not from the behavior of Israelis, but discerning it from what he considered to be Islamic sources. Now, the sheikh, who was who did describe the um, who um, was described as a moderate when he died. He also called the Jews the sons, the enemies of Allah, the descendants of apes and pigs. So he used that that same language. Although uh, after he used it around 2001, 2002, he again received bad press. This time from the West and that he issued a statement saying that we in the Muslim world should stop using this language um, because it does not play well in the rest of the world. And he did stop using it, and he was an enemy of its use. He didn't use it, as far as I know, for the rest of his his life. Now, um, so that's just Sheikh Tantawi, though. What's interesting about him is not that he was a horrible anti-Semite. I do believe that this man wanted to preserve the peace with Israel, but what was interesting is that this anti-Semitism coexisted um, with the image of a moderate, and that how it shows that being called a moderate and rising to very high mainstream places is not something which we um, which keeps a person away from what we would have to call fairly vile anti-Semitism. Um, If we look at Hamas, it gets much worse, of course. The Hamas charter that we we hear about sometimes, but I think not enough, incorporates sections from Hitler's old favorite, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, almost verbatim. Now, it's Hitler's old favorite, but Hitler didn't create it. It was a forgery that was created by the Tsarist secret police. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, probably people in this audience know about it, but if you don't know about it, it is the purported minutes of a meeting of Jewish elders who got together in the late 19th century with a plan to take over the world. And In this plan, what they did was they documented all the different things they were willing to do. They were going to control the world finances. They were going to control the educational system. They were going to use socialism. They were going to use democracy. If they had to, they would kill. If they had to, they would even kill some of their own. They, would do, they, would, they were the ultimate Machiavellians. Now there's a reason for this, because the book was actually lifted from a French book, which was written about 30 or 40 years before the forgery, which did not sell many copies, which was called Dialogues Between Machiavelli and Montesquieu in Hell. It was a French book, and um, it, the dialogues between Machiavelli and Montesquieu in, in hell, and they lifted the Machiavelli parts, and then um, and then the member of the czarist secret police used that as the basis for writing the protocols of the Elders of Zion. He combined it with another chapter uh, from a novel by a German author. Some people have done some very good detective work here. This is not um, my work, this is just com- common knowledge among uh, scholars of the protocols. There was a fictional work, and one chapter in this fictional work described a meeting of the Jews in a cemetery where they made a, a plan to take over things. So they, so the Tsarist secret police put this stuff all together, and, um, and then what they did was they kind of you know, made the appropriate changes as necessary and passed it off as meetings by the Jews. Um, there is a, um, well there's, um, Hadassah Ben Ito wrote a, a very gripping account. It's marred by not having any, um, any footnotes or references, but it's based on good research. Um, but she wrote a very good book about this if anyone's interested in finding out about it because she documents how several courts of law proved that this was a forgery. Um, Henry Ford, at one point, um, had it translated into English and very widely disseminated, and then at one, it started to cause him more trouble than it was worth. So later on, he uh, um, apologized in a way and tried to take back the copies. But anyway, um, by now, by about 1930, there was nobody who had any academic credentials at all that would give this the time of day. Yet these protocols have become something of, of, bestse- of bestsellers in many parts of the Muslim world. Many new translations exist into not only Arabic, but other languages uh, spoken by, um, by Muslims. It sells widely in Malaysia. It, um, if, if you remember the, um, the speech I'll talk about um, from Mahafir Mohammed uh, from about 10 years ago, the Malaysian um, Prime Minister. He lifted elements out of the protocols. Um, I saw a study of anti-Semitism in Indonesia, which showed that many people, if you just talk to common people in Indonesia about the Jews, their images come largely from the protocols. The protocols were actually consciously brought over um, by anti-Semites, including Hitler, to, um, to the Middle East. They were disseminated as part of a conscious agenda, but by now they've taken <laughs> on a new life. Well, anyway, part of these protocols, um, the bad parts, well, they're no good parts, but the really bad parts are incorporated into the Hamas Charter. Um, ab- now, now, that's Hamas. Let's, let's turn to Abbas. Who, who represents hope the head from the Palestinian um, authority um, he um, I mean I, I do think that it's possible that he could represent hope I'm not um, uh, I'm not ruling out possibilities of deals with Palestinian authority I'm talking here about anti-semitism I think that sometimes you, you probably have to deal with the less evil of, of the of these people, so I'm not making conclusions about what to do in the Middle East, but I think it's important to know who we're dealing with. He penned a doctoral dissertation about the Jews, and he argued that the Jews, for political purposes, deliberately inflated the Holocaust death toll from one million to six million. Okay, and that was the main thrust of his uh, one of the one of the key thrusts of his um, doctoral dissertation. Um, Okay, here's some more evidence, because I I think the evidence is important, because when I talk about why people aren't paying attention to this, I want to make clear what they're not paying attention to. I think one way to document the fact that I'm not just talking about some fringe elements is to look not at the famous speech by Mahathir Muhammad where he denounced the Jews for, for having invented socialism and democracy, which do not sound like such terrible things, but he was saying they, they invented these things to help them get ahead in the world, and that they had, and he, he kind of denounced the Jews for all the classic protocols type um, reason, protocols of the elders of Zion reasons. But anyway, when he gave this speech of vile anti Semitism, he gave it to the leaders of the Islamic conference, who were the heads of state or high ranking officials from all of the major Muslim communities around the world. So there were a huge number of very important people there. When he finished his speech, he got a standing ovation. Now, you might say, well, look, it was just politeness. You have to do that in these events, you know, whatever. But then afterwards, not um, as far as I know, there were no clarifications from any of these people from their offices saying, well, you know, we're distancing ourselves from the anti-semitism. None of that happened. They gave him a standing ovation, and that was that. Uh, I might add that Mahathir Mohammed, before he gave this speech, was another great leader who was announced as a moderate who many in the Muslim world should follow. They they stopped saying that after the speech, but before the speech, that was the the word on Mahathir. Um, Okay, then there's, um, when you look at Iran, they, um, I mean there's, there's not much to say there they hold an annual Holocaust denial conference they have cartoon con- contests regularly or who can come up with the funniest cartoon about the Holocaust um, and um, I, I think that this is this is a shorter argument to establish that the Iranian regime uh, or at least Ahmadinejad has said some pretty anti-semitic things um, the, um, the Saudis, who are on, on our side, I think, they're, they're our allies, the Saudis sponsor a, um, a great deal of educational materials. They use their tremendous oil wealth to come up with educational materials, and these educational materials, this is not a news story, but they've been um, distributed around the world um, very much in Muslim-majority countries, but they've even worked their way into Britain. We found some of their anti-Semitic curricular materials in the United States. Um, this is less likely to happen. Now in the, the US, um, the Congress has protested, Hillary Clinton protested against this, and the Saudis said they're going to make progress on this. And then they did some follow-up studies and showed that they weren't making much progress. Then they showed maybe they were making a little bit of progress. So, um, you know, I, I don't have the advantage of, um, of language skills from the region, so I can't be the first person on the scene with these stories to know about late breaking news. I, I would much rather that the experts in Middle East studies took up this story, but for reasons I'll get to, they're not about to do it. Um, they, that for the most part, the Middle East studies community has um, entirely swept this problem under, under the rug, leaving it to um, um, psychologists like myself who do not have um, the appropriate language skills and have to rely on translated material. So, if somebody wants to come back to definitive work with better language skills, I, I would be the first one to hail it. Um, okay, then there are polls done by the uh, Pew Foundation. And they, they don't really have any particular um, side in the Arab-Israeli conflict. They can't really be denounced as, um, as a Zionist tool the way else. so often we hear um, research that um, you know, says positive things about Israel denounced. Um, but anyway, the, um, the Pew Foundation did a poll, and they asked people, do you have a favorable an unfavorable a very favorable or a very unfavorable view of different groups. And one of the groups they asked about um, was the Jews. Now you could say, I don't want to answer, but for the most part, um, people were not saying that. They were responding to this. And um, the, good, the interesting thing about the Pew study is that they asked the question in many Muslim countries where we don't have a lot of good poll data. So they, um, they provided data from Pakistan, from um, Morocco, from Jordan, from Lebanon, from Turkey. So we have, um, how do you feel about the, the Jews? And when they asked Jordanians, who are, um, of course, under one of the more progressive regimes, or at least not of course. I, I think under one of the more progressive regimes in the area, they asked the Jordanian people, do you have a, a favorable very favorable, unfavorable, very unfavorable um, opinion of the Jews. We saw a number that you don't see in the social sciences. 99% said very unfavorable. 99% said very unfavorable. Now this is I I've been, you know, connected with survey research for 25, 30 years. I mean, if you ask people, you know, is um, is it the sun that gives us light, or is it Pluto? You don't get 99% that say the sun. You know, you, you can't get 99% answers. Um, you also got 88, um, in, in Morocco, 88% said either very unfavorable or somewhat unfavorable. In Pakistan, 74% said very unfavorable or unfavorable. Um, in Indonesia, 76% very unfavorable or, um, or unfavorable. Now I might add something, I'm going to take a, a little break from the usual um, talk that I would give on Muslim anti-Semitism. I'm, I'm working on another paper now on, on, a, on a related but not really closely related topic, which deals with poll data about um, American attitudes towards the Jews and towards Israel. And when I look at this data, I want to give it to you for comparative purposes, to give you a sense of but if you ask Americans the same question, how do you feel about the Jews? What I get is, um, let's see, here's, here's um, here, in, in the United States, people with unfavorable opinions of the Jews, only 2% say very unfavorable. Only one person in 50 says very unfavorable when asked the question. Only 5% say somewhat unfavorable. So you have 7% unfavorable in the United States, which is widely denounced for not being sufficiently progressive um, and, um, by, by the United Nations and international organizations all the time. And yet you find the countries that are doing the denouncing with 99%, 70%, 65% um, unfavorable opinions of the Jews. Now, um, you might, as long as I'm, I'm giving you the data, I might as well tell you about some of the other countries. Some of it is a little disturbing. of the people in Japan have um, unfavorable opinions of the Jews, but only 9% very unfavorable. 41% in South Korea, with 8% very unfavorable, 50% in Brazil, 55% in China. Uh, this is unfavorable. I'm saying. 46% in Spain, 34% in Russia, and 25% in Germany. So as far as I can tell, um, the Jews don't have an America problem. Okay, the are pretty, um, America is doing pretty well and that the condemnations that we hear of America in international forums for its um, lack of support for human rights and its lack of progressive attitudes at least one. Piece, I'm not saying this is the whole story, but I think this is a piece of the story that um, that belongs in those discussions. Personally, um, now, another blind spot that we see when we are talking about um, Muslim anti-Semitism is where it comes from, because very soon after I bring all this data to bear, somebody will uh, will say, "But weren't the Jews?" always treated very well in the Muslim world, and isn't this primarily a consequence of the Arab-Israeli conflict? And the answer to that is that, um, that very well is a serious overstatement. That there were times that I think that you would have to say if you were fair, that if you compared the way the Jews were treated in the Muslim world to the way that the Jews were treated in the Christian world, on average, on balance, my judgment is that they were treated better in the Muslim world overall. But that's largely um, a statement about how they were treated in the Christian world, world and not how they were treated in the Muslim world. And the other thing is that you have to look country by country, time by time, place by place. And there's um, a wonderful um, book by Martin Gilbert, which trait which just came out called in, um, in Ishmael's House came out about a year, a year and a half ago, which traces the Jews in all different parts of the Muslim world. And it's fair. It shows that for many, many years in the Ottoman Empire, for example, the Jews were treated reasonably well. They were still um, not treated as equals, but it's not fair to hold, um, hold countries to that standard in, in those eras. Um, So they were treated fairly well there But if you look at the way Jews were treated In the mid-20th century, of course um, It's quite horrible And if you go back um, further in history You will find that many times, many places This was a very discriminatory type of treatment And one which was um, hardly wonderful But, as I said, still probably better Than the way they were treated in the Christian world Um, Now the, um, so that that's one thing, and the, but the other thing is that if if you look at Muslim religious sources, and this is probably the most controversial part of my argument, if you look at Muslim religious sources, you will find ample grounds for um, for sustaining hostile hostility towards the Jews in the religious sources. Now. I'm saying this with a very clear caveat, and that is that I would not want to have to go through the religious sources of the Jewish tradition or the Christian tradition and have to defend them one by one either. I think that all religious traditions, or at least the the three that I'm, um, the Christian, the Jewish, and the Islamic religious traditions, have within them the basis for hatred if somebody wants to find it. What you do find, however, in contemporary Christianity and in contemporary Judaism, is that most of the mainstream religious leaders have done what they can to deal with these difficult verses, to incapacitate them. In other words, um, if, um, if you're talking about um, finding somebody from Amalek, and you have to find their descendants even to the present and kill them, and if somebody tries to argue, well, Amalek, as some extremists do, that Amalek is the Arabs, then you will find that overwhelmingly the, um, the mainstream religious tradition says that's not a correct interpretation. And that the key is that you have to work in, in the post-enlightenment world, most of the religious traditions have worked to weaken the sources of bad behavior within their religious tradition. In the Christian world, um, and in the Jewish world, it's an ongoing process. But you see an attitude towards, we're not going to use these texts to sustain hatred. What you see going on in the Muslim world is in many ways the opposite, except among some progressive um, imams and progressive Muslim leaders, and that they unfortunately are few in number, found mostly in the West, and found um, um, and not widely listened to by, um, by other Muslims. But in, in any case, um, to get back to the, um, the pigs and apes um, language, where is this coming from? In my view, this comes that the people who use it as a term of hatred nowadays, I think, can be plausibly said to be arguing against the text. That in other words, the text, um, the text com- it comes um, from, there's, there's some Quranic basis for the story, and what it says is that the Jews were um, punished by Allah for not observing their own Sabbath. There was a group of Jews in a certain community who were violating the Sabbath, and that this what made them bad Jews, and so God punished them, and he punished them by turning some of them into into pigs and apes. And now that that story, you could interpret it first of all as a sign not that Jews are evil, but you could interpret that story if you were wanted to be progressive-minded, by saying that a person should follow their own religious tradition and that um, that Islam expects Jews to be true to their Judaism, just like it expects Muslims to be true to Islam. And that, therefore, the um, the interpretation here is not anti-Jewish, but rather pro-religious. And as far as the transformation into pigs and apes, um, you could interpret that as somehow temporarily bound. That we're talking here about the seventh century and the idea of transforming people into animals was something that would have um, probably been more viewed as more plausible then than now, and also that you might view this as as not even a literal transformation. So there there have been many debates among Muslim theologians who have raised these different interpretations, and liberal Muslims will come up with a way of totally um, incapacitating or weakening this language. On the other hand, there are militants and obviously, militant has to be defined broadly because it includes President Morsi of Egypt and it includes Tantawi from Al-Azhar, but who argue that, um, that Jews nowadays can be denounced as the descendants of pigs and apes. Now, the, um, when, um, when the Jews are denounced as pigs and apes, now there's another argument against it, which is that these pigs and apes may not have been able to reproduce. So it's possible that um, they just died out, and that was the end of the punishment right then and there. The notion that it was carried forward to subsequent generations is not something that many um, um, you know, many observant Muslims believe. And also there's a question about when they reproduced. Did they reproduce Jews, or did they reproduce pigs and apes? So I've, I've been following these debates. There all sorts of different um, um, different media and that you know and, and you don't have to come away from this story with the idea that you're going to use this as a hateful insult. Um, I wanted to share though with you some of the ways that it is used and that um, and that that's the key. What we find is for example Um, Sheikh Abdul Rahman al um he is somebody who's known apparently in the Muslim world for his recitation of Quranic verse and it's on the internet so I heard him do it, reciting it and it is quite amazing to listen to. Um, when, when the Sheikh came to um, England for the dedication of London's Islamic Cultural Center, key British media dis- uh, spoke of his message of peace and moderation. And that this was the way it all played out in the British press. Uh, But a year before this trip, he had advised his flock, read history, and you will understand that the Jews of yesterday are the evil forefathers of the even more evil Jews of today. Infidels, falsifiers of words, calf worshippers, prophet murderers, deniers of prophecies, the scum of the human race, accursed by Allah, who turned them into apes and pigs. These are the Jews, an ongoing continuum of deceit, obstinacy, licentiousness, evil, and corruption. Um, and that uh, he is um, one of the chief um, clerics in um, in Mecca at um, at one of the most important um, mosques there. Now, um, obviously, to call a man like this a moderate takes either some ignorance of what he said or um, an odd definition of moderate. Um, Hassan Nasrallah from um, Hezbollah, he uh, called the Jews the murderers of the prophets, the grandsons of apes and pigs. The murderers of the prophets, the grandsons of apes and pigs. Um, here's an, um, another one, this is on Palestinian Authority television, a Muslim cleric Sheikh Ibrahim Mahdi used um, used the phrase he was, um, he was trying to work people up against Israel, but he said all weapons must be aimed at the Jews, at the enemies of Allah the accursed nation in the Quran, whom the Quran describes as monkeys and pigs um and here is a cleric who is sympathetic to Osama bin Laden, so you're obviously not expecting moderation here. But he declared on, um, on the Al Jazeera television network, which we'll be hearing more of, um, I'm surprised that the Christian United States allows the brothers of apes and pigs to corrupt it. The Jews have murdered the prophets and the messengers. The Jews are the most despicable people who walk the land and are the worms of the entire world. The Muslims have mercy on the Christians more than they do on the Jews. Bin Laden defended the oppressed. We warned the U.S. and advised her to get rid of the Jews. Um, you're You're probably noticing there's a few other themes in here. The murderers of the prophets. And this has, um, this is a theme that comes up repeatedly in the religious um, tradition of anti-Semitism in Islam. Another one is that the um, the Jews, uh, and there, there are stories, there's like one story, for example, of a Jewish woman who um, was angry at Muhammad for having um, uh, her husband died, I guess, in battle, or was somehow killed in, in war with the Muslims. So the story goes that she fed um, Muhammad some meat which had poison in it. And that he, um, he ate some of it, but he, he made it through. But then years later, when he finally died, he died because of, of a stomach problem, according to this. And the stomach problem is traced back to what this, um, this woman did. There there are other stories that you get. Now, the stories that I'm talking about now are not in the Quran. They are in the Hadith, which is a different type of tradition in Islam. And that these Hadith um, are (coughs) understood by Islamic scholars to have differing levels of reliability. So that some of them are judged as things that the Prophet definitely said, and some of them are judged to have somewhat less reliable you can trace them less reliably back to um, to Muhammad, and therefore you have to question them. But the stories in the Hadith are much more um, get much more vile in describing the Jews than in the, in the Quran. And that some people believe that these that some of these were added later on. And there's a, a very interesting book out called "The Jew Is Not My en- Enemy" um, by um, Yeah, by Tariq Fatah. And um, and in this book, what he argues is that at some point, um, when the leadership of the Muslims um, switched back to people from Mecca, what had happened is that these Meccans felt vulnerable because they had initially rejected the Prophet. And so in order to um, bolster their own position, they tried to inject into Islam later on more of an anti-Semitic tradition than was there initially. And that the goal was to um, try to deflect attention from what the Meccans had done to Muhammad and to make it more what the Jews had done. And therefore what you find is this tradition having been added artificially. Now the argument that he makes is way beyond my competence to assess but I think the idea that somebody would try to make such an argument is, is very admirable and, and very interesting um, in, in, in any case. Um, well, the, um, the stories go on and on about this, um, the pigs and apes thing. Like, for example, they even go into the trickery of, of what the Jews did to break the Sabbath. There's one story that they were trying to go fishing and that, they, that God was playing a trick on them. He was trying to check, to test their, um, their faith So he made all the fish go away on every day except the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, when they weren't allowed to fish, he had all the fish right near them, right by the shore, so they could catch them. And then what happened is that the Jews were tempted to fish on the Sabbath. And then, um, so one of them came up with the idea of, let's dig a ditch and have a channel go into the ditch. And then when the fish swim into the channel, into the ditch, we close off the um, the ditch, and now the fish are there. But we don't actually fish them until um, um, fish them out until after the Sabbath. So we haven't really broken the Sabbath. And I'm reading through this, and I'm thinking, oh, well, that's clever. I kind of I kind of like that approach. But um, but in any case, it uh, it it shows first of all that. Um, that this was, I, th- I, st- I still think that the liberal interpretation of this tradition is truer than the, um, than the hateful one, although I guess it's not my place to make the call, and it, but it does feed into this image of Jews as very tricky. And so the trickiness part of the, is, is in that story and it shows up in other stories as, as well.